Welcome to another edition of the Dementia Care Partner Talk Show. Now, here's dementia care expert Tifa Snow and your host, Greg Phelps. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Care Partners podcast series. I'm your host, Greg Phelps, and joining me as usual is Tifa Snow. And Tifa, we have a guest today, Dr. Beth Nolan. And so what are we going to talk about? I, policy? Is that why we, is Beth a policy person? Well, she has a bit of a history in that, and U.S. and international, and you're from Canada, and we have friends in Australia, so I thought maybe it was time for us to talk a little bit about this, because policy affects care. So what sort of policy? I I got bored sort of, you know, sitting around one night, and I downloaded uh, a Dementia Strategy for Canada from 2018. Together we aspire. Well, that's great. We're aspiring. You didn't know you have a plan. You're aspiring. So Beth was a PACS representative at um, a, a federal hearing thing that they wanted to listen. And so it was a public hearing. So Beth, uh, Dr. Nolan, Beth Nolan, if you would give us a bit of what what happened and what that was about, because you're that's where you came into it. I said, hey, Beth, could you do this? And she did her Dr. Beth Nolan thing. Yeah. Hey guys. Uh, so thanks for having me on. So we were asked, um, and we've been participating and kind of reading along in the, the emails that come through of a group um, out of the United States that was trying to get hearings on, uh, for, well, specifically for their advisory council on Alzheimer's research, care, and services. And what they were looking to do was to get input on a couple of areas. But interestingly enough, the comments that they got weren't that many, and it was mainly, I think, almost exclusively, except for ours, from researchers. So obviously, positive approach to care is not coming from a research standpoint, but rather from an education and advocacy for people living with dementia. So we took it in a slightly different angle, I found. So, so Greg, I, what I want you to hear, it was supposed to be about services. What was it about? supposed to be about best services and... Services, care? care, and research. Services and care and research. And most of the comments they got were all from research, but not services and care. So we were one of the few groups that was active in, interested in services and care directly, not the research about it. Well, okay. So, which is kind of interesting because that wonderful paper I was talking about from Canada, um, I, I sort of thumbed through and found our three national objectives. The first one being prevent dementia, second one, advance therapies and find a cure, and third one, improve the quality of life for people living with dementia and caregivers. So, you know, I, I was kind of perplexed by that, and then to hear that maybe it's something that is uh, common is, I don't know whether it's reassuring or disappointing. Well, it's certainly not reassuring to me when we are still thinking we can prevent the various forms of dementia people can get when we know how complicated that is. I mean, risk reduction, that makes sense as a policy choice, but prevention and curing, wow, well, that's, that's going to be a bit. So Beth, what, what did the U.S. do? Because you've been, you were really sort of paying close attention. What was the U.S.'s uh, sort of goals and aspirations if you want to yeah, they were really, um, a lot of the researchers were talking about this idea that how we fund Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries was an issue. Um, and they were starting to look at this concept of 
the problem we have with nomenclature. I was actually really excited about this. Oh. And I'll get back to that if we want to talk about that one. But the other piece they talked about was this, it was diagnostics. It was the blood-based biomarkers, specifically as they put it for Alzheimer's disease um, and these risk reduction committees. So it, it had a very traditional policy feel along the lines of we got to find them and then we got to prevent it. But there wasn't really a big focus on how do we support except for in the fee-for-service area, Medicare. And right now, Medicare doesn't really cover much related to any form of dementia. It covers uh, like if you have a urinary tract infection and you have dementia, and it does cover the initial workup uh, to find out if you might have a dementia. But beyond that, yeah, not so much. I mean, it truly is when you're looking at, um, you know, the origins and with all due respect to Medicare, and I'm, I'm obviously a huge fan of Medicare and our Medicaid system, unlike some people, but the origins of Medicare were a hospital-based system. And it was, it was created before medications even were the primary form of management for most of our chronic diseases. And then we added any sort of these fee-for-service outpatient stuff. And then we added some stuff on medications. But even then, the medication part of Medicare only came around really recently. So it is always a little bit behind because the science has to get there and the care has to get there. But it really speaks to this fact that I think the United States has not figured out whether we're dealing with a cognitive issue. Is this a mental health issue or is this a medical issue? And if it is, we don't even have a good diagnostic system. So how the heck can we possibly support and pay for services for people? Unfortunately, so, it makes sense. So Greg, so up in Canada, you guys are interested in dementia, is that right? Uh, yeah, quite interested. Yeah, we have our national strategy and uh, I think... Uh, Almost all of the provinces have uh, their own provincial strategy. They try and dovetail them, but uh, and, yeah, and we're, we're talking about it. And you're using the word dementia. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you still have Alzheimer's societies. Yep. Yeah, and do you have dementia societies? Well, we do. I could read you the list of all of the people that took part in this, but then we would probably be out of time. There were a lot of participants in our national strategy, but which I, I think led to it being... Um, presented as an intellectual document rather than what I was hoping for, a little bit more of a chop wouldn't carry water type of document. Because yeah. there are people out there working on, on preventing. There are people out there working on advancing therapies. And I, I'm sort of a meat and potatoes guy because that's the world I live in. Yeah. Yeah, but at least you're at least looking at dementia as a whole thing. So Beth, what, what about the U.S.? What's, what's our plan called? Uh, which one? Well, the, the one that started, uh, the one that really kicked this off a few years ago when they got a law passed. So what was it called? Oh, the, 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 the AOA? The National Alzheimer's. Oh, well, we just called it Alzheimer's, didn't we? Uh-huh. Yeah. So we're still using the word Alzheimer's to describe this thing that actually we know doesn't always present itself as Alzheimer's, nor is it all about people over the age of 65, nor is it all about just dementia. It's, it's, it's complicated. So, you know, and then we have the care partners and we still have Alzheimer's Society and we now have the Lewy Body Association. We have the FTD Association. So, I mean, we're, we're still, I think, all over the place and yeah the plan you're all talking. over the place yeah and the plan you're talking about tipa is for the for the united states is is napa this sounds yeah. like you know, the national alzheimer's project act 
And you're right, we're still naming it Alzheimer's. And uh, that gave me very, like, made me very curious. Yeah. So we can't give our, our nomenclature down, Greg. At least Canada sounds like they're calling it dementia, which is actually a more accurate term for what's going on here because it's hard to get specific about what condition somebody might be living with and what symptoms they might be experiencing and what support they might benefit from and what their care partners might should know and what their providers should probably know about if they're going to be providers. Um, so it sounds like you took a look over at... Australia, what'd you figure out? Because we, we've been working with some folks in Australia and they said, oh, we got some issues over here too. So Yeah, I, I think it's the same, one of the same groups that you've dealt with, University of Tasmania. They've done some certifications and things. And uh, uh, I looked at most of their stuff. They're, they're of the uh, dementia persuasion. They're not of the Alzheimer. They, they're uh, very um, uh, into research, which I think is often the right direction. They're offering a lot more, in in my humble opinion, uh, practical stuff that families and care partners and uh, persons living with dementia can actually use. Not that research and, and science shouldn't be present, but I, I don't think that the average person on the street can pick up a 104-page document like, like I am sitting here looking at and get anything out of it. You can, I actually, the first time, a true confession, uh, I started reading it on the couch and I fell asleep. So there you go. Oop. And if that's what happens, it's going to be hard to get a lot of forward movement because too many people are going to be sleeping on the couch and waking up and going, okay, so I didn't get much out of that. And this is our researcher, Beth Nolan, who's like, but research is important. We all see it. Yes, we all agree it is, but could it be a bit more practical, do you think? And could it be driven by what's helpful to people living with dementia and maybe the people who are supporting? Yeah, I, I think that when you look in history and some of our biggest service provider gains when it comes to policy changes and the way that all hospitals or all providers in a particular area, when they've made major changes that have helped with massive outcome changes for folks, it's when we have the people who have the lived experience involved in the process. Mm. So for example, take women's birth process. Mm. So it wasn't until women started to say, uh, no, for my second child, you will not clamp me down to a table, drug me and make me a body and a vessel that you're gonna rip this child out of me. I will be conscious and I have a right to determine what happens to me and my child in the course of that process. You can also see this in intellectual disabilities and, dis and um, developmental disability services. Parent advocates and people with intellectual differences said, no, I have a life and I have a right to live where I want, to be where I want, to be integrated into classrooms and care and integration for some of the, the issues that you know were, were coming up. Now, obviously intellectual disabilities is not a medical condition per se in that context, mm -hmm. but I think that there's lessons to be learned from a policy standpoint if we are looking at dementia, whether you're just looking at Alzheimer's only or the other hundred and some odd forms, types and causes of dementia, I mean, just looking at Alzheimer's alone, are the people who are getting these services, are the people who are getting these drugs, are the people that are getting these interactions, are they at the table having these conversations? What do I want as a wife of somebody living with dementia? What do I want as somebody living with this disease and I'm not quite sure we're there yet if we're still talking about behavioral manifestations of the disease or violent actions when we talk about diagnostic categories. Yeah. So 
You know, Greg, I think the bottom line for me, as long as we we place people at some point often in what we call a secured unit for their own safety, um, I have questions about how we're doing what we're doing. I mean, I think creating uh, spaces for life that have safety measures in them are one thing, but imprisoning people for their own good, when to the best of my knowledge, they hadn't committed a crime, but they do have a condition that makes life as we they had it more challenging. I mean, we're, we're still in a very weird place with dementia, I think, as a policy phenomena versus this plan and what they call it, what you guys call it, aspirations? You aspire, Greg? Because you're, you're probably wanting to say something to us <clears throat> with that. And I think you may be muted. And, and that's not helpful because you your voice carries real well when it works. Well, I, I think my wife would actually wishes I did come with a, a mute button to you. <laughs> uh, I don't know how, how, how we're going to advance this as a country and as a province in, in where I am. We are making strides. We we do call it dementia. We you know they're little little steps along the way. We do have um, ongoing research. I don't know how we tie it all together because I think the the document I'm reading failed. Uh, or do we have to tie it together? The the bulk of the people in that we're talking to are persons who need information, they need practical advice, they need practical solutions. Yeah, they wanna know that, okay, there's 419,000 persons in Canada uh, living with dementia. Yeah, okay, I know that now, so what? Does that help me? You know, How do we, as a researcher, Beth, I know researchers like to drill down and find things, but how do we sort of get people to look up and go, wow, we still got a problem despite all these reports and all these studies and all this research, we still got a problem. Yeah, you know, as the defender of researchers, and I feel like there's a place for this here. If, you know, I'm trying to think of what's the, I always think of truly when I look at policy or I look at research, so what? Like, why is the purpose? Why would we need to have a tracking of the amount of the impact? And I, one of the biggest things when it comes to the translation of research into policy is we have to have that justification. So there's an implied justification if we actually are tracking the number of people that this affects or the dollars that this affects or the beds that this affects, we can justify from a black and white, you know, harsh reality of there's only X number of fund uh, dollars to go around or the X number of yen or the X number of pounds to go around, no matter which country you're in, and we have to make some hard choices. So with respect to having this idea that there actually is a tracking, we know how many people have these types and forms and causes of dementia, it is important. But you're right, when you're looking at this, what is the purpose of these documents and where are we going to bridge that gap between who are we helping? Are we helping figure out for the policy where the money is going? Are we helping providers figure out when they've got somebody in their office what to do and how I can then support them when I'm pretty sure this is happening to somebody and one of my patients? Or are we trying to help families and people living with and all the other people in between? And I do think that there's got to be a place for all of those in these types of documents. Because right now we're still at justification, putting down the numbers, and we're really stuck in this idea of prevention and treatment. And that's where it seems to, the conversation seems to end. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest challenges for me is I think the numbers could be off because of the tools we're using to screen for the presence. Amen. 
Um, and when we are screening for the presence, what are we gonna do about it when we find it? Well, we don't even screen, so how can we do anything? And so we're waiting until the crisis occurs or until the condition progresses. And that really eliminates a lot of options for doing something that might actually help us plan out or plan ahead or figure out before we're in crisis what might help us or help each other and maybe even change the community around a bit so that where I am, I can be because people are able to support me somehow, not in a major way, but in just sort of a looking out for each other way that used to be part of what we did, but it's a bit less of that anymore, I think, in many places. So. I think this is going to end on, on the to be continued note because we can talk and, and there's been lots of talk, but I think what PAC has done is they've embraced the, okay, now let's take some action. You're not getting into the research field. You're not getting into the fundraising or anything else like that. You're saying, okay, here's some practical things you yeah. can do. Here's some knowledge you need to know. You've, you've carved out a good slice of the pie, I think. Yeah. And we use practical, we, we have people try things and say, which one worked better for you? And it's like, well, this one, it's sort of called practical hands-on research. It's in some ways, because it's like, well, if it worked better for you, try it again, see if it works again. Oh, it worked again. Oh, it worked again. It didn't work this time. Huh. I'm curious about that. Let's figure it out. Because it's sort of, we call it adult experiential learning model, because you learn by doing, not by <clears throat> necessarily reading a document. Just saying. Dr. Nolan and Tipa Snow, thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Good to talk with you. You've been listening to the Dementia Care Partners podcast series. For more information on today's topic and just about anything else related to dementia, go to tipasnow.com.